it's quite common to come to private lending for title transfer reasons. We see it with inheritances as well. Yeah. So it is quite common. I wouldn't say it's the most common product we offer, but um, definitely, you know, 10 to 20% of transactions would have some sort of title transfer requirement. Thanks for tuning in to the Canadian Private Lenders Podcast, the show about starting a private lender in Canada, the mortgage industry, and the real estate industry. Your hosts are Neil Andrino and Ryan McNeil. Enjoy. All right, welcome back, everybody. It's episode 11 of the Canadian Private Lenders Podcast with your hosts, Ryan and Neil. Neil, how are you doing today, man? Great as always. Happy to be on here. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. So we've got a jam-packed episode today, I guess. We're going to go through another live deal example. We did one of these a couple of weeks ago, I think on a blanket mortgage scenario. Today, we're going to talk about title transfers, and we're going to talk about just specifically a spousal buyout type transaction. But before we get into that, uh, Neil, I know you had a couple things you wanted to touch on. So kick us off here, buddy. Yeah, yeah. Before we get started, I'm just noticing I'm like my hat contradicts my poster. I don't, yes, you're not as much of a car guy as I am, but that's a Lamborghini back there, <laughs> and that's it. Yeah. Anyways, for anyone listening, they're not going to see that. But something came up. Maybe it was yesterday, or two days ago, and I was like, "Oh, this is interesting." And so, as many people know, we're in Atlantic, and we grew during COVID for a bunch of reasons. One being immigration, another being migration, and migration I think almost played as big of a role as immigration did for a period there. And that's kind of the idea of people moving from within the country, so Alberta, BC, Ontario, to Atlantic. And a big part of it was predominantly Ontario. When that was taking place, and if you listen to Master Keys, I had a big concern that a portion of those people would go back. Mm -hmm. There's a mixture of reasons, like work would bring them back, lifestyle wouldn't be great. Like I think a lot of people came here being like, I'm so tired of the big city, I'm going east. And then they they may have overdone it or they didn't realize what they appreciated from the big city. And they found that these spaces maybe were these cities were too small. Anyways, it's in the last week I've had two or three instances now where I'm talking to people and especially because I'm in the process of hiring. So I'm getting a lot of resumes and a lot of them say Ontario or they were in Ontario two years ago or three years ago. And I, I always call them before I even do the interview because I'm just nervous that they're going to end up going back. Mm-hmm. But a lot of them also really loved being here and also see an opportunity for growth, which I don't want to be like be negative and say I'm surprised, but I guess maybe it's I'm surprised a little bit that there's a lot of people that want to stay. They actually did have that exact moment of like, I couldn't afford anything. I came here, I bought a house for 700K, which was a beautiful big home on a piece of land. I'm comfortable with the commute, even like it's 25 minutes, which again, for some of the locals seems like this insane range, but for them, like, this is amazing. Like I'm on an acre of land, 3,500 square foot home. I love the community and I'm 20 minutes, 30 minutes of downtown. So anyways, I just wanted to share that for Atlantic Canadian listeners that I think it, we've probably already weeded out a lot of the people that were going to go back. Yeah, I know a couple of people that applied, they said they were working remote and then the company cut them off from remote work. Yeah, And so now they had to find local work, but they still intended to stay. They were like, I'm not going back. Like they can cut off the remote work. This isn't going to drag me back. Like I'm established here now. Yeah. I'll make a couple of comments there, Neil. And, and uh super interesting trend. I think I've mentioned on the pod before that, you know, the last couple of years, especially 2021, we saw a massive influx. It was the number one client profile, someone moving from Ontario or West, like you said, to Atlantic Canada. Really? 
Yeah, yeah, just unprecedented amounts. And that continued into 2022. Obviously, it slowed down since then. And at that time, I'll say back in 2021, maybe early 2022, I had the same concerns as you is that these people, they're coming right now. They're going to get dragged back to the office in a year or two. And then we're going to have the out migration again. And that's going to negatively impact property values in Atlantic Canada. But the more time that's gone on, we still do see quite a few clients. So probably not the number one client profile we see, but still a very common client profile we see. And I think you nailed it too, Neil, in saying, you know, you got the six, seven hundred thousand dollar house, you've got the shortened commute. You're likely still able to work from home if you're here, or you've been able to secure new work. You know, maybe you have a very employable resume that can secure employment here. Obviously. There's been more opportunity created and unemployment has maybe been as bad as has been expected in Atlantic Canada. And people aren't willing to give that up, right? It's tough to give that up when you've done it. You know, I moved from Ontario. I was pre-pandemic when I moved back east, but it's really difficult because I was not in a position to be able to afford a house in Ontario. And I immediately moved to Atlantic and was able to. And that's really tough to give up when you, once you've had it for a couple of years. So it's... uh Super interesting trend, but I think you're right. I think this is, I think most are going to stick at this point. The trend will obviously slow over time, but uh, those fundamentals that have been created in Atlantic Canada with the increase in population base, looks like it's going to stick. It does. It does. Do you think there's an aspect of it too that's like cultural in the sense of like, I know like in Ontario, like I feel like the culture's gotten pretty aggressive with money in general. Like anywhere downtown, you go down the streets, it's luxury cars everywhere. Everything's extremely yeah. expensive. Restaurants are extremely expensive. Do you think some people are probably like a little fed up with that? And also, like I know for me, I found it discouraging because I got there and I was like, I feel like a bum. Like I'm like, I can't even think about eating at these restaurants. Yeah. It's motivating in some capacity, but it's also like if you're there all the time. And so you're grinding through traffic every day to get into it. And you're just like, you know what I mean? Does it get to a point where like when the guy buzzes by in a Lamborghini and you're just sitting there and like, I'm, I've had my fill. Like, this is not even cool. This is just annoying at this point. It's rough when you're making 120K a year commuting an hour each way and you're still living paycheck to paycheck, right? You know? Yeah. And I'm specifically talking about Toronto. In my experience, I, I'm sure it'd be somewhat similar in the other big centers in, in Canada. But yeah, there's amazing restaurants, amazing culture, sports, all that great stuff there. Fantastic city. I absolutely love it. But it weighs on you and it costs a lot to live there, right? So yeah, it's one of those things that, you know, and, and to your point on the work culture as well, like I can speak from specific experience. Yeah, there's way more employment opportunities and, you know, opportunities for advancement. All the head offices are based out of there. But culture is definitely different. I was talking to somebody at the uh, premiere event we were at a couple of weeks ago, Neil, who's now based there and is originally from here. And they were shocked yeah. to what the culture is like, you know, and he's at the same company yeah. too, right? So he's experienced on both sides. I was in a different business when I was there, but I know just internally, it's just much more cutthroat. It's kind of every person for themselves, race to the top. You know, I'm going to stay at the office an hour later than you and not even because I have to, but just to showcase there for an extra hour because it might get me a promotion six months down the line. And coming to Atlantic Canada is just way more Jesus. collaborative, relaxed. It's just, you know, when I came into the mortgage industry, I tell people this all the time, but like even competitors were willing to help me out, tell me who to talk to. 
give me feedback and this is totally different work culture. So I think that likely resonates with people too. And they experience that, you know, obviously you have a more relaxed way of life with, you know, being able to afford a property and have shorter commutes, less traffic, but also in the workplace too. It's, it's a really good point. I think that that is a major plus for people who come out here. Yeah, 100%. I was going to say, we refer business around. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, <laughs> well, if there's a deal we can't do, so we'll pass it on to another lender. Yeah. Yeah. You want your broker to be taken care of right at the end of the day. So if we can't do it and another private who's a competitor of ours can, we're happy to refer that off. 100%. Anything else you want to touch on, Neil, or should we jump into it? No, let's let's jump into it. That was, like I said, just something that took place and I was like, this is neat. So I'm excited for the prospects for Atlantic, but... Uh, Completely agree. It's not what we're here to talk about today. Yeah. No, I'm glad you brought it up, Neil. That was, that was great. Okay. So let's talk about title transfers. Okay. So often private funds are needed for super simple reasons. Okay. So just like title transfers. So this could happen in a multitude of different ways. Some common ones would be an inheritance of a property or a spousal buyout that I'm going to get into here, or simply, you know, a scenario where you've got multiple people on title. One person doesn't want to be on title anymore or can't be on title anymore. And the other person basically needs to buy them out. So I just wanted to quickly define what a title transfer is for those who may not be aware. So a title transfer happens when a person is added or removed from the property ownership or title by the owner of the property. Okay. Straightforward. Does that make sense, Neil? Easy peasy. Cool. Okay. So let's talk about an example here. So this particular client, so this was a deal we put together a couple months ago now. It's already gone full cycle. So this particular client had a marriage breakdown, you know, pretty common event that happens. They own their home that was just outside of Halifax in Eastern Passage. They had to remove the ex-spouse from title. So basically they needed to refinance that property. They're going to pay out the first mortgage that's on the property currently that had two people on title. And then also use additional funds from that refi to make equalization payments to the ex-spouse. Okay. So very straightforward transaction, but a lot of people wouldn't necessarily think of this as a way to leverage private funds. And the benefit of something like this is basically you refinance that property, you pay it the mortgage, you get the lawyers to confirm that the equalization payments are going to be made. And then the title transfer happens behind the scenes. And then the client's able to refinance. So this particular one, obviously, you need to have sufficient equity in a property, just like any other private deal. You need to have that strong exit strategy. This one had both. So I'll run through the actual deal numbers here. Property appraised out at 350000 Nice little property in Eastern Passage. The mortgage was, from our side, was just shy of 230000 So it was 65% loan-to-value, basically right where we want to be in that location. They had to pay off, I believe, a $150,000 current mortgage that was on there. And the rest was going to those equalization payments that I basically had mentioned. So this then goes through the legal process just to confirm the funds have been transferred. And then we get a signed separation agreement to confirm everything's kind of gone on behind the scenes. And that's basically it. It's very straightforward here. Clients then able to refinance out. They were able to refinance out in three months from this to a B lender. And that was it. They paid us out, no penalties. They're with us for three months to get that title transfer. They pay the fee. That's how we make funds in our transaction. Client wins. They get their separation agreement on payment on paper. The broker wins too, gets to close a quick deal. And then three months later, gets to close another one. Wins all around. 
went all the way around. Okay, questions. Yeah. We should relabel this podcast as Ryan's Teaching Neil. So <laughs> first, first question is, equalization payment is basically them paying for the other portion of equity that they owe. Just, I'm not even really, like, I haven't dealt with much separation or divorce. I don't even, yeah. Yeah, yeah knock on wood, I haven't either. But uh, this is, uh, <laughs> this is basically exactly as you said. Whatever's been agreed to in the separation agreement that makes things equal, it would be the equity piece owed to the ex-spouse Got it. to make things equal. That would be the equalization payment. Yeah. Okay. And as a borrower, the reason to come to someone like us would be, I think, is it timeline is the predominant one? This needs to get closed within a certain time frame. And their two options are basically they can work with us or likely they would have to probably sell the house. Because you can't go in the process of a separation, you probably can't just be like, I need four to six months to get a refi pulled out, or even three to six months or whatever it may be. Yeah, that's part of it. I think I don't have the exact details in front of me here, but there was likely, you know, because there was no separation agreement signed off yet, and they needed this process to take place to make those equalization payments, most prime lenders and B lenders would not be okay with that. So they'd not be able to do that. They would say, you know, get that done, get your equalization payments done. And then we'll finance out the transaction once the title change has happened. So in this particular one here, okay, they needed to go private for this transaction. I'm not sure if there was any employment issues or not off the top of my head on this one, but we'll get Zach on here soon and ask him these questions because uh, he would definitely know. But grind him with the underwriting. This was just a way. Yeah, exactly. But the other thing too, Neil, and now that I think about it, it's probably the fact that it's an open mortgage that we offer right? That makes the most sense to do this transaction. So it's just, it's a creative solution that the broker's coming up with on this deal to say, yeah, like I can do the title transfer over here, but I'm going to get locked in at a higher rate for three years or five years, or I can get it done private, pay the fee, pay the higher rate for a couple months, and then refinance out at a longer term at a lower rate for that client who's solely on title now. Got it. So do we go on before the title has been transferred? So yeah. yeah, so we would be on title on the mortgage right away because we're paying out the other mortgage holder and then going into first position on the property. And then it's basically a lawyer process behind yeah. the scenes to switch that title, make the equalization payments whole, and then complete the separation agreement. But we would be on title the whole time as soon as we fund the transaction. And the borrower is the single partner that's keeping the house. Correct. So we're allowing to be... We're signed on by a single borrower on the house, which still has the two names on title, but we're doing an understanding that one of the names is going to be re removed yep. and it's going to stay as their house. And again, most banks would not be interested in that potential risk factor in the middle there. Exactly. And basically the scenario that it would have worked out would be that, yes, we're funding this mortgage for that single borrower and the lawyers behind the scenes would then, you know, have an undertaking that this process is going to happen to complete the separation. And then from there, you know, the entire time we'd be, we'd be on title on that property and have that security. Exactly. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. We always carry the security. There's just a little bit of paperwork involvement. And again, there's a little bit of risk associated with it that, like you said, the A's and B's won't be engaged in. And then our exit as a lender in this is knowing that they can then go out and get an A or a B to take us out. And that's where we can we keep our, our LTV down. Exactly. Is Zach probably looking for, or an underwriter would look for an income to ensure that they can also then go to a more prime product to pay us out? Yep, exactly. There'd be confirmation that the income's there, or at least an opportunity to refinance with a B lender on a, like a stated income program or something like that. 
the fact that this one, this is one that we would have capped at 65% loan to value just to ensure we've got those strong exit strategies there. And this one obviously being an HRM opens up those options for other B lenders who are focused on urban areas only, right? So the fact that it was an Eastern Passage was great because we know B lenders are going to be there. They're going to have more flexibility with um, their income requirements, client profiles that they'll take on. And uh, we knew that that was the planned strategy and and it came to fruition, like I said, three months later. What are the largest risks associated with something like this for both parties? Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's a ton of risk for the legal process of the separation agreement here, because like I said, you know, the lawyers would be undertaking that on both sides. The risk here would be, I don't know, maybe like a client left their employment or something like that or blew up their credit as a result. Or, you know, there could be, you know, still maybe infighting from the the old couple that uh, severely damaged their credit, which could elongate the time that was required to refinance. And if that client who was now solely on title didn't have a strong enough income to make the payments, that could lead to an event of default, right? So I would say that would be the kind of the most likely risk in this scenario. But, um, you know, that's why we build in our risk mitigation factors. And we were willing to bet on this particular client profile and it ended up working out. Okay. Yeah. And so I guess more my question is on the private lending, exactly to what you said, there isn't necessarily a heightened level of risk in comparison to any other private deal because of the situation, really. And we maintain our same principles with LTV and everything. So absolutely. Yeah, we don't change too much in terms of, you know, there's obviously certain scenarios where the LTV is going to be lower just to mitigate risk. But in terms of how we call deals at the end of the day, it's almost always coming back to equity, exit strategy. Can they get out? How soon are they going to get out? Do they have the income to support this during the term of the loan? Yeah, makes sense. In your experience, did you find there was a lot of volume associated with this kind of situation? Like, was there a lot of special buyouts? that you did? Was it just like a consistent volume source? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And probably more than I would have expected in my early days in the industry. It's quite common to come to private lending for title transfer reasons. We see it with inheritances as well. In those scenarios, we had another transaction recently where a a father passed away and then their child inherited the property and basically had to clear the mortgage on the property through a title transfer. So we were able to pay that out. Very similar situation. So it is quite common. I wouldn't say it's the most common product we offer, but um, definitely, you know, 10 to 20% of transactions would have some sort of title transfer requirement. Interesting. I didn't realize it was that much volume. Yeah. I don't think I have any other questions on it. Makes sense. Yeah. Question period's over. I think so. I'm trying to think in my head. I'm like, that makes total sense. Yeah. No, it's uh, like I said, it's very straightforward, but at the end of the day, very creative solution. So This is just one I wanted to kind of bring to light because, you know, I think most brokers would be aware of this, but maybe there's some who are not and borrowers the same. So this is one of those ones that the goal with private funding is to use it for as little time as you need it, you know, just to bridge the gap. But this is this is that creative solution that you can uh, you can use for a very short period of time. You have minimal costs associated with it and then go about your business. And uh, the good brokers are well aware of how to leverage this. Yeah. Probably also there's an aspect of lawyers knowing this as well, because some of them could give some suggestion to their clients, like a divorce lawyer, that like, look, this is how we can get this handled. And I imagine, I guess most divorce lawyers, if they're predominantly doing divorces, then they're going to see a lot of these private takeouts. So they'd be able to give that suggestion to to their clients. 
That's a great point, Neil. I think you found our, our next uh, target market. <laughs> our next lead source. <laughs> they still have to go through brokers, but, yes, but we could just let them know that <laughs> what's out there. Absolutely. We'll take the lead, but we're going to send it out to one of our awesome uh, broker partners. <laughs> 100%. All right, Neil, are we uh, are we ready to wrap or what? I think we kind of tied that one up nicely, but um, unless you had anything else you wanted to add? No, 100%. I think, like I said, I think I got all my questions in. It makes sense to me. I think it's an awesome opportunity for someone who's looking to become a lender. And then if you're in the unfortunate scenario where you need it, maybe, we uh, hopefully we can be of assistance. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. And I uh, appreciate you guys tuning in. Catch you on the next one. Hey guys, it's Neil Andrino, your co-host and your co-founder at Keystone Capital and Director of Investor Relations. I'm also a real estate agent, real estate investor, and business owner. And your co-host here, Ryan McNeil. I'm the co-founder and president of Keystone Capital Group. Keystone Capital Group is licensed under the Mortgage Regulations Act of Nova Scotia, license number 3000549, and through FCMB, license number 88799. And keep in mind, the views of this podcast are for informational purposes only and is not financial advice.